to what we're supposed to be talking about. So, let's. Um, so, I want to, um, I want to start with the story. Someone asked for a story tonight, Steve. I think did you do that in your prayer or something? Did you? Anyway, <coughs> in uh, some anci- some ancient history to start with, in 19, going back to 1958. How many people can remember 1958? Hardly anybody. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, good few. Um, in 1958, I was 19 years old. Dramatic pause now, so you have time to calculate my age. Um, 1958, I was 19 years old, and uh, <laughs> um, in love with a beautiful young woman. She's no longer young, but she's still beautiful, <laughs> and uh, the girl I was to marry eventually. But uh, I uh, had been ill with um, some sort of throat condition and uh, I had got up on Sunday to ride my motorbike to church where I was supposed to hear this, supposed to play my piano accordion to accompany the singing. Wow, you'd like to hear that, would you? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You got an accordion here? No, okay. uh, that particular one I actually gave to the missionaries in New Guinea. And some of you here this morning when I talked about Papua New Guinea, and you know, when I was there, I found my old accordion in the lower the Lara village. And I went to open it, and three huge big cockroach kept running out of the accordions. <laughs> I don't think they play it much. Anyway, I was, I was on my way to church uh, with a motorbike, and um, I didn't have the accordion with me on the bike, fortunately, um, but I was going there to do that. But I, uh, I really can't remember what happened, but I understand from what I was told that I somehow must have fainted or lost uh, my uh, faculties or fell asleep or something, probably because I'd been sick. And I got up sort of trying to act my faith. I wanted to you know, prove that the Lord was a healer and so on. And I, anyway, I went off the road and ran into a tree. Um, I went over the handlebars of the motorbike, so, so with my head pointing downward, I kind of thrashed it, smashed into the tree upside down, and that kind of bent my spine. So my head and legs are both pointed down, smashed into the tree. Uh, well, I'm, that's what they told me. I didn't remember. Oh, all I remember is just seeing this tree in front of me and that's the last thing I remember and then I don't know what, I remember trying to swerve to miss it but obviously didn't. Next thing I knew I was awake and wake, wake up in the ambulance and I was feeling pretty crook and uh, wasting me off to hospital. Uh, I um, felt like my arm was up above my head like this on the bed and so I thought, wonder why I got my arm up there? So I asked so I tried to move it and, and the ambulance officer said, don't move, don't move. And he said, you've hurt your back, don't move. And so I knew a couple of things were wrong. I knew that my, and I realised then my arm was actually lying across my chest. It wasn't up there at all. So I knew I'd done something serious to my arm. Then the officer said, don't move because you, I knew I'd done something bad to my spine. And it turned out that my left arm was broken. My spine was fractured. My skull was fractured. Some people say that explains a few things. Um, <laughs> my uh, left shoulder blade was fractured. Um, I had a ruptured kidney, ruptured spleen, a shock, concussion. I think that's it. Uh, so I was a pretty sick boy. If any of you know anything about uh, those things, you know that ruptured kidneys can be fatal, ruptured spleen can be fatal. In fact, a, a fellow student of mine, I was at teacher's college then, a fellow student of mine that same year, about two months later, got kicked uh, in the kidney area, the spleen area rather, playing football, and it wasn't detected, and 24 hours later he was dead. Because uh, they didn't, really didn't know what had happened. So the combination of all the injuries could have killed me, um, fractured skull could have been pretty serious. The fractured spine, they told me later, um, was so close to making me a quadriplegic, it almost didn't matter. It's just a millimetre from uh, paralysing my whole body for life. So it was a very serious accident that I went through. Um, I had to have surgery that same night. The doctors told me later, forgive me for the details, but they told me later they couldn't find my spleen. It was all in pieces. It's a completely wrecked. Um, but they took out what they could, stitched me up again. For the next three days, I was just in hospital with, uh, well, hovering really between life and death. And so the physicians would give my family no encouragement that I was going to survive. Um, they um, didn't know whether I was going to live or die. I could have told them because I knew I was going to live. Uh, and that's not a boast, it just was. From the moment I regained consciousness, I just knew that I was not going to die. But nobody asked me, so I just kept that to myself. Um, 
if you think I'm a bit round-shouldered, well, then this is why, because the spinal injury has left me with a hump in my back, which I can't do anything about. Um, for the next those three days, uh, I couldn't eat or drink anything. I had uh, intravenous feeding, had tubes going on my arm for that. I had blood transfusions going on, so more tubes. Uh, I couldn't even drink because I couldn't hold anything in my tummy, so I just used to suck uh, ice cubes to try and get some moisture. And I was in such desperate pain that I had morphine injections every four hours. They didn't have these things you've got nowadays where you can just press a button and get a little jab. They was just by a needle. And uh, the thing, morphine would last about two hours, and then uh, the next two hours I'd just lie there in extreme, I suppose, agony, really, just waiting for the next injection and, and sort of coming in and out of consciousness. I never, ever want to go through an experience like that again. Was, uh, I, I just Even the thought of the pain I went through is such that I, I just uh, shudder at the prospect that might ever be repeated. So there I was in this condition and finally after about three days I showed signs of recovery and so they told uh, Vanessa, my, who was then my unofficial fiancé uh, and uh, then eventually my family that I was going to pull through. A lot of people were praying for me. I calculated later on from all the feedback I got that something like 400 people were praying for me all around the place and I know that made a big difference. And I guess my trust in God made a difference as well too. Um, there's another story that I won't have time to go into, but they uh, discovered after I got over the worst of it all, um, it was 28 days before I even sat up. I was just lying on my back for 28 days. But when I got up and started to move, they found my left shoulder was actually paralysed. I'd, I'd ripped a nerve up here, and circumflex nerve for those who want to know, and uh, my deltoid muscle therefore was rendered useless, so I had a paralysed arm also that I, I just couldn't do anything with. Um, there's no pain. Uh, appeared to be nothing wrong with it, but it just didn't work, just like some church members. Um, <laughs> so I was in a bad way. <laughs> no, you wouldn't have anybody in your church like that. No, 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 no. So I was, I was, you know, I was very seriously ill. Well, I'm, I'm just grateful to God uh, and uh, that I survived. My wife is grateful to God that I survived. And the night that I went through the accident, she was lying at home and she was uh, desperately concerned because we were very much in love. And uh, she eventually came to Romans 8, um, uh, 37, which says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor height nor depth nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And particularly verse 37, which said, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So she clung, uh, clung to that verse. She was able to sleep after that. And, that was, uh, and then she brought me a little... Uh, painting of Jesus uh, with, a, with that text on the back of it and stuck up by my bed which to encourage me too so I'm, I'm just uh, grateful that uh, God gave me new life and gave me another chance at living uh, it's a long time ago now um, so that's nearly 60 years isn't it? Yeah, nearly 60 years ago now since that happened but why I'm telling you the story is that after it happened um, a number of people came to me and said why did that happen why did you go through that and I said, because I was stupid, that's why. Because <laughs> I should have stayed in bed instead of riding my motorbike. Um, but uh, oh, there's another little side story too. The young women will probably appreciate this, that Vanessa told me that if ever I rode another motorbike, she would break off the engagement. Um, and then, so I, I did. Uh, some months later, uh, after we officially, officially engaged, I, I went just 100 metres down the street on a motorbike and I just wanted to see if I could do it really without sort of being terrified. So when she found out, she took the engagement ring off and she stuck it in my top pocket and uh, said, engagement's off. <laughs> um, she, re- she relented, of course. She realised what a terrible mistake that would be to lose me. So uh, <laughs> she, uh, so she, uh, she came back looking for the ring and it wasn't in my pocket. <laughs> it had dropped out. Uh, we were actually on the Adelaide railway station when that happened, seeing some friends off to Melbourne. And so there's another answer to prayer because uh, that was the day before Christmas and uh, we couldn't advertise, no newspapers on Christmas Day and because no Facebook or anything in those days. But the next day, the, the day after Boxing Day, um, someone put an ad in the paper and said they'd found an engagement ring in Adelaide Station and, and it turned out to be someone who lived around the corner from where we lived. So we got the ring back. And how did I get onto that? Um, oh, yeah, people being uh, people asking questions. Well, she didn't ask the question, but some people said, um, was that God trying to teach you a lesson? 
Or was that the devil trying to knock you off? Well, I'd never thought about it. I didn't think either of those things were particularly helpful. I I thought, well, it just happened, that's all. It just happened. Um, And uh, I've thought about it a lot since then, and I guess in some ways that's where this book comes from, Walking with a Limp, because a lot of people ask that question about their own circumstances. You know, why do things happen? Why do do things go wrong? Well, I really can't answer that question very well. I don't know anybody who can, really, who can say why these things happen. But I wanted to give you a few things tonight, um, a few points on why keep going when they do happen. Now, you might not understand why they happen, but why keep going when they do? I suppose one day when I get to heaven, I'll be asking some questions. Say, what was going on there, God? <laughs> I wouldn't mind knowing. And I have a fancy that he would say what I said before. He'd say, because you were an idiot. That's why you should have stayed off your motorbike. <laughs> I think it's probably what he would say. Because a lot of our trouble, we, uh, we bring it upon ourselves. There's no good blaming God for it. Uh, a lot of it is our fault. And, uh, you know, people... I was talking to someone this morning about this. People want to blame God for things that go wrong. I've heard a lot of people say, why does God allow suffering? Uh, Have you come across that question? I mean, it's a very common question. You know, I have never, ever had anybody say to me, why did God allow me to be happy? (laughs) They don't don't blame God for, for, for staying out of it when they're happy. But as soon as they're unhappy, they blame God when he stays out of it. And it's, you can't always say that to people, of course, because they don't really appreciate that, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, that's, that's, that's really true. That if we're going to question God's absence when things are going wrong, why don't we question his absence when things are going right? It's only fair. It's only fair. Um, all right. So the first thing I want to say to tonight is that trouble will come. And uh, there we are. It's on the screen. Trouble will come. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 now, this is a book that I'm not sure that it always... is Ecclesiastes is written by a man who's a bit of a cynic, and I think sometimes some of the things he says come out of his cynicism rather than out of inspiration. But in this, this one seems all right. Again, he says, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Well, that was proven this afternoon in the soccer match in which your pastor pay, uh, played. Yeah. The, the race is not for the swift or the strong or the wise or the intelligent. <laughs> but, uh, but you won anyway, yes, you won anyway. <laughs> Good example of this right here in Scripture. So, you got your medal on still? Uh, yeah. You're like the man who got a medal for being the most humble person in church, but then they took it away from him because he wanted to wear it. <laughs> anyway, back to our Scripture. <laughs> it's got to get better, doesn't it? <laughs> You're writing down all these dad jokes there, Steve. Okay, Okay, the battle is not, in other words, the battle is not, it doesn't matter how intelligent, how knowledgeable, how wise, how swift you are. The fact is time and chance happen to them all. In other words, even the strong people suffer and weak people sometimes don't. The rich people sometimes don't. The poor people sometimes do. He's saying in the world it's just like it's almost random. Uh, There's no explanation of why it happens to some people and others. Then Jesus said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. As Jesus said that, in the world you'll have tribulation or trouble. So we can expect trouble to come our way. That's, uh, that's what the Bible says. Now, here's some other great scripture passages there. Philippians 1.29, one of the great promises of scripture, one of the great biblical promises. It says, to you has been granted the privilege of suffering for him. Isn't that a great promise? I'm still waiting for someone to write a chorus on that one. Set it to music. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Who knows what 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says? Somebody must know. Give you a clue. God has not given us, go on, spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. What's the next verse say? (coughs) Nobody knows the next one. Paul to Timothy says, um, take your share of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Yes, good on you. Okay. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's part of the deal. In chapter 2 of Second Timothy, he says, um, you, know, um, you want to put on the armor of God like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, the thing is, someone once said, if you don't want to get shot at, don't put on the armor. Yeah, don't put on the uniform. Acts 11.22 says, through tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. So there's a whole lot of stuff there that says that life actually is marked by trouble. And that's how, how it is. 
On the bottom of the screen, I've got a sort of fainter print uh, that you can hardly read that uh, there are four kind of causes of trouble. There's our own selfishness sometimes. Um, in addition to this, so things just happen. Sometimes our selfishness causes trouble. We only got ourselves to blame. Uh, sometimes sin causes trouble. Sin has its uh, inbuilt consequences, and so trouble can come from that. Um, Satan, of course, can produce trouble, and will try to do so. And sometimes in God's sovereignty, he puts us through tough times for reasons best known to him. So, but the thing is, there's trouble, no matter who we are. But the next thing is trouble is not a sign that we are out of God's will. Now, some people think it is. They think as long as everything's going swimmingly and going on beautifully, that uh, therefore they're in the will of God. But as soon as things go wrong, uh, they're out of God's will. So we're driving to church Sunday morning, get a flat tire. Uh, mustn't be God's will for us to go to church this morning. Got a flat tire. So they go home again. It's got nothing to do with it. It's, uh, you ran over a nail. That's what happened. <laughs> It's just, it's just life. We live in a fallen world with fallen nails and fallen nails, <laughs> you know, puncture tires, and that's where we are. Uh, it, just, it just happens. Uh, so, and sometimes, of course, um, God allows them to happen. Now, there's a big debate about whether God causes trouble or allows trouble. Uh, let me just take an example, and it's got to be you, Jamie. Um, now, there's two options you've got here. One is that you sit there and I punch you in the face. Um, <laughs> Or secondly, that I hold you while Kyle punches you in the face. <laughs> now, now for, you, for you, the outcome is exactly the same, isn't it? So people say, oh, well, God doesn't do it. He allows someone else to... Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. The end result is just the same. You still get slugged in the face either way. And so it's a bit of a fine point of theology, really. The question is that the God's in it either way. Whether I do it myself or get him to do it, I'm, in, I'm involved anyhow, so... So sometimes God lets us go through situations where, where trouble occurs. It doesn't mean to say it's not God's will. And sometimes he, in fact, uh, uses trouble for his own purpose. And I've got the word martyrs on the screen there. Now, there are some astonishing stories of martyrdom that have come out from the whole period of church history. And right now, now who, who knows, but there are claims that even now there are more people being martyred, more Christians being martyred in the world today than probably at any other similar given period, any other time. Uh, you know, for every 12 months, probably more. So, I mean, maybe hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives. Are we, we going to say they're out of God's will because they're being martyred? Because they're refusing to deny Christ that they're not in the will of God? Uh, you, you're hardly going to say that. And, you know, we hear these horrible stories coming out of the Middle East, uh, but it's not just there, it's other places in the world as well. And of course, even here in Australia right now, um, if you dare to stand up and proclaim God's word about certain issues, people don't argue with you, they just insult you. You're a bigot, you're homophobic or whatever. And so and that's a standard line of argument these days. You don't argue with reason or you don't argue with logic, you argue by abusing the other person. And Christians are on the receiving end of that a lot, in fact. The most unpopular religion in Australia today is Christianity. It's not Buddhism, it's not even Islam. Christianity is more unpopular than any other religion. Now, for some extent, we deserve that because the church has not done a very good job of a lot of things over recent years in all sorts of ways that I won't go into tonight. To some extent, we deserve it. But the fact is that there's all sorts of suffering going on around the world and it certainly doesn't mean we're not in the will of God. In fact, doing what God wants may, in fact, increase the suffering. And history makes that very clear. It has happened many, many times. Somebody asked me this morning, uh, who my, was it last night, who was my favourite um, character from church history? And the first name I quoted was John Huss. Now, you may not have heard of John Huss, but he was a man who was burned at the stake because he refused to deny the truth as he saw it in Scripture. Was John Huss out of God's will? It would be silly to say so. Okay, so why keep going? Why keep going when we face suffering? Well, first of all, because God is love. Because God is love. Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 4. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Would you say those three words with me, please? God is love. Let's say it again with a bit of feeling. God is love. Yeah, that's better. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John four sixteen. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that um, the Scripture says here that God, not that he's loving, but he's actually love. He's essentially love, that God is love. 
Now, you see, if, if you say God is loving, then we say anybody's loving, say someone's a loving person, uh, you still have room for times when maybe they're not loving. When you say somebody actually is love, that's saying something far stronger, something far stronger. Um, because that means that everything about that person is, is love. He, he is the personification of love. And so when we're talking about God and saying God is love, well, as we see here on the screen, uh, God is 100% love. Can you see that? I've got to use this now. I've got it. Okay. Uh, God is 100% love there. And that means that, I mean, imagine if he wasn't. Imagine if he was only love, say, 95% of the time. You happen to pray during the 5%. Too bad, mate. Not love at the moment. <laughs> Come back later. When I, or if God was only 90% loving, and so that means that you come with a problem, and then God says, look, I really love you. I don't love you enough to solve that one. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we'll be doing if we're saying that God is, is, is loving but not actually love. You read the Quran, you find the Quran says over and over again that uh, Allah is compassionate, and God is merciful, and God is forgiving. It says it over and over again. And the same book says, God hates sinners. God hates the wicked. But as you read the Bible, you find that the Christian God, what does he say? Even when we were yet sinners, even when we were enemies, God loved us. Big difference. People say Christians and Muslims and Jews or monotheists all worship the same God. Well, if they worship the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us enough to send his son for us even when we were his enemies, then yes, we worship the same God. It's up to someone else to prove that we don't. So, well, what to prove that we do prove that? Um, because we go on, we continue in the face of suffering because we know, we know that God is love. We didn't know that. Um, and we don't have to question then that even in the worst times, we keep going because we know that God has not stopped loving us. It may seem like it sometimes, but he just hasn't stopped. He just keeps on loving us anyway. Um, you've probably all had people say to you, well, I don't believe in God. I found it's been helpful to to ask if they would actually answer me, um, well, what kind of God is it you don't believe in? Which God don't you believe in? And then they start to describe this God they don't believe in, I'd be saying, well, gee, I don't believe in that God either. If that's God, I don't believe in God. Because the God that most people don't believe in is not the God of the Bible. It's some other God. It's a God of some other religion. It's a God of their own imagination, their own thinking. It's a different God altogether. And if you can get, if you can get people to talk about it, and it's not always easy because people are often very upset and passionate and so on, but if you can get people to talk about this, it's, it's a helpful thing to do to say, well, okay, let's describe this God. What's he like, this God you don't believe in? And uh, you know, if we start coming to a biblical definition, you find, well, different God, <laughs> different God. So God is love, and that's why we keep going. That's one reason, because God is love. Number two, we keep going because God is good. And we've got songs singing sing this. But Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, the people sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, and they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Psalm 136, verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 2, give thanks to the Lord, of the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you were to go through the whole 30-something verses of that psalm, you find every psalm says, every verse says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the Bible says that over and over again. Like Psalm 103, verse 8 says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. You know, abundant in mercy. And many verses like that, because God is essentially good. And now, um, if we can believe that, that enables us to keep going as well, because we know then that the things that are happening to us, things that are going on around us, are not coming out of vindictiveness or out of God's uh, anger, but because uh, it's doing for us what is essentially good for us. And we'll develop that point a bit more as we go along. And Genesis 50, verse 20 this is a verse that comes out of the story of Joseph. You remember, if you know the story, how uh, Joseph um, was sold into slavery by his brothers and then they pretended he'd been killed and uh, everything else. But when they finally had a confrontation years later when Joseph had become the uh, leading executive of the nation of Egypt, uh, he said to them, and when they found out who he was, they were scared, terrified. And he said to them, you meant it for evil, 
God meant it for good. And uh, that's the, that little verse, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, is a, it's a neat one to tuck, tuck away because it means that no matter what's happening around us, even though it looks like it's for evil, it's actually, it's actually for good. Even though it doesn't seem like it's good at all, it is for good if we, if we are believing in him, we trust in him because that means it's just part of his dealing with us in order to bring about the ultimate and the best result. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis used the analogy of a dog, the master, and how the master does things to train the dog in order to make it obedient, in order to make it more responsive, and so on. And Lewis says, well, the dog would probably find that pretty hard to believe at the time. But at the end of the day, the training that the dog gets might save his life. Now, I had a dog. Once we had a beautiful Kelpie. It's a bit hard to keep a Kelpie in the city, as you probably know, because they love to run and jump. Um, I put a fence up when we first got out, Kelpie, a four-foot fence. Might as well save my breath. <laughs> Just jump, jump straight over. <laughs> so I got up to a six-foot-high fence. He could jump that too, so I gave up after that. had to train him instead just to stay in. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, and we're going, taking him for a walk, training him to stop at every cross street, especially in the city. You've just got to say, you know, learn how to stop, wait till he's given the command to go, he goes again. And I suppose he found that frustrating. In fact, I know he did because eventually we had to, he lost his life because he didn't stop when he was supposed to. And, and another dog came around the corner and in a moment of panic he ran out onto the road and he got killed. It's very sad. Um, I used to be very scornful of people who cried when their debts died and their pets died until mine did. <laughs> broke my heart anyway um, but the fact is that we trained that dog trained him in order to save him and keep him and protect him and Lewis goes on and points out the same analogy that um, you know that because a dog is trained there it's it's trained to eat the right food it's trained to uh, live in the right way it becomes healthier it's a it's better cared for it has less problems and all these things result from this this training that as a puppy the dog actually hates and fights against and so he said so why does the master do that because the master is doing it out of a sense of goodness I mean, he wants the dog to be good to him too, of course, but he's doing it for the dog's sake as well so that he becomes a good dog uh, and that goodness is passed on. So because God is good, we have to acknowledge the fact sometimes he does things in our lives that we would not like to have done. But the end result, we think, oh, well, thank you, Lord. It was a pretty good idea, really. <laughs> I didn't like it at the time, but I can see now what you were up to. Okay. All right, number whatever number it is, because God is faithful, the next one. We, we keep going because God is faithful. Lamentations 3.22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse and the wonderful hymn by Thomas Chisholm. Great is your faithfulness, O God my Father. And the various verses of that. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. If by some strange chance you, are, you attend my funeral service when the time comes, uh, I have requested that they sing that hymn at my funeral. And if they get to the end and they haven't sung it, you have to stand up and say, excuse me, we've got to sing this hymn. Yeah. Now, look at the verse. Look how it starts off. He talks about the Lord in the third person. He's talking about God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What a great statement that is. It doesn't matter how many mercies God shows to us. They're endless. There's always another one. There's always another one. They're new every morning. And then notice he changes the second person. Great is your faithfulness. So instead of talking about God, he's now talking to God. And there's been a kind of transition from teaching about him to worshipping him and, and relating to him. Um, great is your faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 3. Know therefore the Lord your God is God and the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And there are heaps of other verses. Psalm 89, verse 1, also on the screen there. And I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, his faithfulness endures to all generations. And then First Corinthians, or Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful in all his words and in all his deeds. First Corinthians 10, God is faithful, will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear it. And what's First Thessalonians 5, 24, he is faithful and he will do it. And 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, same thing, that God is faithful. And so we could go on in the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 10, where he, he talks about the, the faithfulness of God and, and uh, how we can have a secure hope in him forever because of his faithful steadfastness. 
And there are many other similar verses in Scripture that talk about God being faithful. And that's why we can keep going, because faithful means you can trust him. He won't let you down. He's always going to be there. He's always going to be consistent. And so because God is faithful, we are able to put our faith in him. And that's why we can keep going. And if you were to ask me what I think is the greatest truth about God, I'd, I'd probably have to say, well, God is love is probably the greatest one. But in terms of my own experience with God, I'd want to say, well, God's faithfulness is the big thing for me. That's, that's my, my number two choice, that God is faithful. And I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, I've learned something about faithfulness in my life. I've learned what it is to have a faithful wife, for example. We've been married for 55 years. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so how long have you been married? Five, only 50 to go. You catch up. Yeah. And uh, I know what a, a, a wonderful thing it is to have a partner who is faithful all those years. Extraordinary thing. So faithfulness is a wonderful quality because it gives us security um, and uh, it just gives us a foundation. And if you just know that God is faithful, it doesn't matter what happens. You're not going to shift. You're not going to change ground. You're just going to trust. You're just going to keep going anyway. I mean, if you told me, for example, that my wife was uh, uh, committed adultery or something, I'd say, no, she hasn't. Because she's faithful. And, you, know, you can tell me anything you like about her, but I'm not going to believe that. Because it's, it's just not possible for her to do it. And if you were to tell her that I'd been unfaithful, she would say the same thing. No, don't believe you. You couldn't do it. Because we have just absolutely established faithfulness as a basis of our relationship. And the, um, um, the day we got married, I remember standing in front of the mirror with uh, you know, getting my... Those days all bridegrooms wore grey suits and grey ties. A grey tie, white shirt, grey suit. And I'm standing there doing my tie and I'm, I'm saying to myself, boy, I hope I'm doing the right thing marrying this girl. Now, I was 95% sure. I just had this sort of 5%. Just, oh, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Now, Vanessa tells me she had no questions at all whether she was doing the right thing marrying me. Now, I can understand that. But, see, uh, <laughs> but I just had this, this slight misgiving. <laughs> just had this, this slight misgiving. But I can tell you that from the day we got married, I have never, ever asked myself that question again. Did I do the right thing marrying this woman? Because it is meaningless. It's like being halfway down a parachute jump from an aeroplane and saying to yourself, did I do the right thing? <laughs> it's a bit late then. You know, you're halfway down. You've got to make sure you have a good landing. And so we've been working on that, making sure that we have a good landing. And that, that comes from our, our knowledge of the faithfulness of God because we know God is faithful, then we learn to be faithful to each other. And I just wish um, more Christians would have that kind of sense of fidelity because so often people make a beginning of being faithful but then somehow the faithfulness kind of dribbles or cracks or crushes up like a rice bubble being snapped. But faithfulness means we, we just continue to trust each other and be faithful to each other regardless. Okay, we've got to move on here. Uh, yes, because we have a hope in heaven. We keep going, we keep walking because we have a hope in heaven. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16. We do not lose heart. Can you say that with me? So we do not lose heart. Say it again. We do not lose heart. Okay, though our outer self, this physical thing, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. Now that I want you to think about that phrase. This light momentary affliction. <coughs> now Paul is writing this in an era when people were losing their lives for being Christians. This is the beginning of, of those many periods of martyrdom that took place in those early centuries. And um, this is fairly early in the piece. So probably the martyrdom or the persecution he's talking about is that which came from the Jews, which was not as severe as what the Romans did later, um, but it was bad enough. And you remember how Paul himself had gone looking for uh, victims, really. Uh, remember Stephen was stoned to death for being, being a Christian. And uh, Paul was looking for other people to uh, at least to get them beaten and whipped uh, for being... So, but Paul says this is a light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction. Uh, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what a contrast there. This light momentary affliction, this eternal weight of glory. Now what an what extraordinary difference between those two things. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Okay, where are we looking? Where are we looking? At the things that we can see, the things we can't see. What are we looking at? For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. There's a huge contrast there between these two things. We can look at those things that are around about us, which are very real to us, or seem to be very real. But in fact, in, in eternal, uh, eternal perspective, uh, nothing compared with the eternal weight of glory that lies ahead for us. And um, this hope in heaven is, is one of the great things that, that we have as, as Christian believers. Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, uses the example of um, a childhood accident. So let me ask you a question, paraphrasing what he said. Can you remember a time when, when you were nine or eight years old or something and you had a nasty tumble and you severely scraped your knee or you maybe broke your arm or you did something like that? You can remember something like that? Yeah. Now, at the time, if you're anything like me, um, you probably thought the end of the world had come. You know, that was the worst possible thing that could happen to you. I remember falling off my little tricycle and, and biting a big hole in my tongue and screaming my head off as Dad carted me off to the doctors to get it stitched up. Um, at that time, you know, that you're, you're so consumed with this terrible thing that's happened to you. You think, oh, how can my father let me do this? How did my dad let me do this? But looking back now, I think, oh, poor little kid. And that's all I think about it. You know, it's, it's long since gone and passed. You know, and it doesn't matter anymore. Well, Philip Yancey says that our whole lifetime is rather like that little momentary affliction when you scun your knee or you broke your arm or something. It seemed terrible at the time, but now looking back, it's just a, a few minutes or a few days of, of a whole lifetime. So he says our whole lifetime will seem just like a second of eternity when we go to heaven. So by comparison, it is nothing. And even though we may throw, throw through something like I described before, that accident I had, in the, in the light of eternity, it's just a, just a flick of the finger, just a blink of an eyelash. It's just nothing in, in comparison with what lies ahead for us. And so we get very upset, and, and it's understandable that we do, get very upset about serious sickness or serious illness or serious or marriage breakdown or um, a serious uh, reputation, uh, stain to our reputation or whatever, um, or, or not having a job or losing money, all these things, uh, major issues, major problems, they cause us grief and worry and concern. Um, but, but the scripture says, but look, that's a light momentary affliction. You know? Just like falling over when you were a kid and skinning your knee. That's all it is. Compared with the eternal weight of glory that lies ahead for us. That glorious hope that we have in Christ. I think last night I told you about the telemarketing lady I said I felt so sorry for her because she had no hope. But how, do you, how can you live without hope? Because of what the Australian culture has done now, it has said, well, everybody goes to heaven anyway. So, um, you know, you notice that, haven't you? It doesn't matter who they are. Um, some, some young man can kill himself in a car accident at 2 o'clock in the morning driving at 180 k's and three times over the limit. Oh, but he was such a good boy. He was such a good boy. And uh, everybody loved him. And everybody thought, well, you know, I think, oh, come on. The guy's breaking the law, driving without a license. He's drunk. It's two o'clock in the morning. He has an accident. Oh, he's a good boy. And so we try and sort of brush it all over these days, and we've lost the consciousness of sin to some extent. But for us uh, who believe, for us who believe, it's a very different thing because we know that sin or not, we do have a hope because it's through Christ because our hope lies in him. In fact, um, if there wasn't a heaven, there'd be no point in being a Christian. Really. Because heaven is the, not, not because we get a reward in heaven, but for this reason, life is unfair. Life generally is unfair. Do you know some really good person that's suffering with a sickness they can't seem to get rid of? Yes, yes, no, yeah. Do you know some rogue who's as healthy as a Mally bull, never has a day sickness in his life? Yes, no, you know of at least someone like that. Um, do you know someone who's very rich, got all the money in the world, and yet they're crooking, they're crooks who scheme their way through? You know some poor person who's honest as the day is long and hasn't got a cent? I mean, that's, life is like that. It's very unfair. And the, there's no way to explain that, and no way to believe in God and explain that unless you believe in heaven. Because the scripture says, you know, Abraham asked this question thousands of years ago, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes, he will. He will do right. But it's not, he's not doing it in this life. A lot of injustice is allowed to continue in this life. But there is a life to come, and in the life to come, then everything's going to be put right. Or everything's out of balance, but we put in balance. All the injustices will be made justice. 
all the unrighteousness will be made righteous and it's all going to be sorted out. And it's only because we believe that that we can keep going. Otherwise, no point. Otherwise, no point. Because life is, seems unfair. Uh, I mean, just uh, saw a quick news report tonight of a, um, in, of a family in Perth, mother and three children, one of the little girls, uh, what, three months? No, old. Anyway, apparently, Amanda's apparently a father had come to the house and set a light to the cotton, which is a little, little girl, three, three, year, three years she was, three year old. A girl in his pot, and the father came and tried to burn her to death. And that's an appallingly horrible thing. And you say, well, if, if this life is all there is and God lets that happen, then there's some big questions. But if the reality is that even though how horrible that is, if the reality is that one day all that sort of injustice is going to be put right, you know how much Jesus loved little children. It's one day it'll be put right, and we say, well, okay, it seems terrible now, but in the overall picture of things, the weight of glory is so big and so great and so wonderful that it will seem like nothing in comparison. Some people will say that's being callous because it's not nothing. And of course it's not. You know, if you were the mother of that little kid, you'd be devastated. Uh, and uh, you'd want to give up probably. But the only thing that stops you giving up because you, you, deep down you know there's some way there's got to be something better. Some way there's got to be a better solution, a better way of handling things than that. Okay. I'm not sure that I'm answering things totally. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> At least throwing some ideas out here that we can look at and consider uh, to, to try and help. At least to keep going. Even if we don't get it all, at least to keep going because sometimes you don't get it all. But uh, we keep going anyway because we have a hope in heaven. Number whatever it is, because tears are God's tools. We keep going because tears are God's tools. And that's the heading of one of the chapters in my book. Hebrews 12, verse 11, For a moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now this means that God sometimes steps in and uses situations to discipline us, which we don't like. We don't like anybody disciplining us, let alone God. But sometimes he does that. And the whole whole chapter 12 of, of Hebrews talks about that. It seems painful at the moment, but later it yields the fruit of righteousness. And that's what we're looking for ultimately. It's what God is looking for ultimately. Second Timothy 1 verse 8, you want to know what that says now? Don't you? <laughs> take your share of suffering or take your share of hardship, says Paul, for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, all right. Um, I talked last night about Pastor Leo Harris. He had a favorite poem he used to quote sometimes. <clears throat> on this theme of, of God's discipline and hardship and, and tears being the tools of God. <clears throat> it was written by uh, uh, Oswald Sanders, who was for many years the principal of the Bible College of New Zealand. He had been a missionary. He was a dearly loved brother in Christ in the evangelical world. Not so well known amongst Pentecostals. Also, he's been dead for some years now. Uh, but he was, a, he was a highly esteemed and, uh, and well-loved uh, honoured evangelical leader and uh, as far as I can tell he wrote this poem he certainly is, appears in his book on spiritual leadership and uh, it's on the screen there I think I want to read it to you when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man when God wants to mould a man to play the noblest part when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed. Watch God's methods. Watch God's ways. How God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how God bends but never breaks when he's good he undertakes. How God uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Well, you might like to meditate on that. It's in, in my book here if you want to go through it further. But there's some wonderful lines there um, to go back to the beginning of it. Um, notice God has three intentions to drill a man, to thrill a man, to skill a man 
and the drilling and the skilling go along with the thrilling. If we want the thrill without the skill and without the drill, we're not going to get it. They go together, and they go together. And, uh, and then look at that about line six, how God yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed. I thought God wants to do it. I know he says man all the way through this. It's uh, 1940 or 50 language. Um, but woman as well. God wants to create a woman so, so great and bold that all the world should be amazed. Watch God's methods. Watch God's ways. Because he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. We love the royally elect bit. Wonderful to think that God in his divine royal sovereignty has selected us and chosen us to be among the elect of God. But why he's chosen us is so that he may ruthlessly perfect us. In fact, it's very interesting. If you do a bit of research on this, you'll find that, you know, people, uh, that all the passages about predestination and choosing an election in the scripture are all about holiness. Now, people think that when the Bible talks about predestination, it's just talking about whether you go to heaven or not. Now, people have this image of sort of God sitting in a heavenly daisy field and he's got a flower in his hands and every petal has got a name on it. He's just plucking petals and saying, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. And, you know, bad luck if your name's on one of the hell petals. Um, but that's not what it's like at all. Uh, he chose us uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him, says Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And uh, Romans chapter 8, um, the verse we all know, he, uh, we know all things work together for good with those who love him. But before that, uh, he says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And uh, there's a lot of people who, if they realize that, they would be, wouldn't want to be elect of God. So they don't want to be conformed to the image of his son. They don't want to be in holiness and purity. And that's what he calls us for. So he ruthlessly perfects us for that. Then how he hammers him, he hurts him. <laughs> and then there's his trial shapes of clay, as if he's got like a potter sort of um, trying to get it right almost. And he's keeping shaping, keeping working because uh, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. As Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And, we, and then the, we, here we are, tortured heart, crying, lifting, beseeching hands, saying, God, it's enough. We can't take any more. We're crying out and saying, Lord, please stop. I, 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 like, this is as much as I can handle. But God bends but never breaks. He knows when to stop. When he's good, he undertakes. And so with every purpose, God infuses us and induces us to try his splendor out. We can't try the splendor of God without going through this shaping work of God. God knows what he's doing. God knows what's about. So tears are God's tools. And the truth is, if you want to be a servant of God, you want to be used by God, you want to be uh, uh, someone who demonstrates the splendor of God, then you're going to get a few hammer blows in your life. I've said in my book, every servant of God walks with a limp. And you you can name... Anybody, I think, who's in significant Christian leadership and you'll find that somewhere there's a limp. Somewhere they've been through something which is just... And see, the thing about a limp is it reminds you all the time that you're not perfect. So you walk with a limp, you're sort of walking like this. You know all the time. Every time you put your foot down, you know that something's not quite right. And the girl who did the layout for the cover, I thought, did a brilliant cover here with the two footprints, the one heavy and the one soft. Uh, so the person is walking unevenly, just uh, walking along. And all the way through the book, these uh, little footprints appear, just reminding us that that's walking with a limp. But we're still walking, that's the thing. Still walking, that's it. Limping, but still going. And, and God does things in our lives in one way or the other. I think that accident I talked about before that I had was uh, uh, probably had some divine purpose in it, even though I reckon it was my fault. I think <laughs> nevertheless God still was at work in that. It's one of the things that he used to try and make the best he could out of what he had with me. But you can name anybody else. I think of someone like Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, you know, early in his ministry, uh, was involved to move the congregation to a huge, uh, the Surrey Music Hall, which seated thousands of people. And um, the first service he had there, there was a big accident. 28 people were injured and seven people died because of a crowd panic that occurred. Not his fault. A terrible blow, terrible thing to have to live with. Um, anybody, you'll find that's what they, what happens. Is there's always a limp somewhere. There's always been some hurt, something to remind them, um, to remind us all that uh, we haven't got it all, and it's only God who enables us to keep going. So we trust Him. Finally, 
We keep going because Christian faith is a crucified faith. Now, I'm sure you've read many books and magazine articles and probably heard some sermons about faith in which, rightly or wrongly, the author or the speaker or the preacher has kind of given the impression that if you believe enough and you have enough faith and you, you do it right that you can get a new car or a new fridge or a new stereo or a new smartphone or this or that. You know, if you can believe it, you receive it. You can confess it, you possess it. You can blab it, you can grab it. You know. There's all these things that people say, and you know, just just got to believe. That's all. Just believe, and you can have everything. You ever heard that sort of read that sort of thing? I'm sure, you haven't. I think it's not so bad as it used to be. And nowadays, we te- we come to realize. I think that the teaching about faith in Scripture is more about faith for expanding the kingdom, and faith to finance missionaries, and faith to finance good works, than it is about getting a better car or a new smartphone. A Christian faith is a crucified faith. It means it's a faith in the Spirit of Jesus. It's not a faith that's selfish. It's not a faith that's seeking our own ends. It's a faith which is seeing to do the sort of things that Jesus would love to see us do. John twelve twenty three, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is interesting because this is just before um, his crucifixion. Just before his crucifixion. And, you know, people always shouted in the streets and everything. And you think, well, that's when he was glorified. People all shouted, very waving palm branches and everything. But he says, no, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's talking about the crucifixion. He goes on to say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, um, let's look at that bit by bit. Um, grain of wheat you can put it in a jar up on your kitchen shelf leave it there for a long long time it's not going to do anything except probably shrivel up Um, it's not going to grow anything it just remains alone if I stick it in the ground get a little bowl of earth put in that and it will grow all things being equal the the grain will grow I don't need to tell you that Um, so when, when the grain of wheat dies then it bears fruit Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So that's very strong words he uses there. Um, now, Middle East language, hating, using a word like hate your life and keeping your life, those are as typical Middle Eastern expression where they tend to use exaggerated uh, ways of saying things in order to get the point across. And every culture has its particular foibles like that. Like that. So Jesus did it often. He says, why are you trying to get a speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye? You know, sort of exaggerated things to help us to see a picture, to get, get the picture. So this is probably very strong, but the point is still that they're very clear, isn't it, that, um, that if we give our lives here more attention than our lives, eternal lives, then we've got things wrong. We've, we've mixed up somehow. We've got to get our perceptions right in that. Anyway, uh, I want to tell you a little story about this uh, verse. Um, before that, though, just the other reference there, 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12. In that reference, Paul talks about, always, he says, we carry about in our bodies the death or the dying of the Lord Jesus. So the life of Jesus might be manifest in you. And, um, you know, I talked to you about your life being Christ-like before. Well, this is a good verse for you, too, because uh, um, it's only when we die to ourselves that we can see life in others. As long as our focus is on us and ourselves. So, so true leadership is always for the people who follow, not for the leader. So it doesn't matter what your leadership thing is. You're not in it for yourself. You're in it for the people. And it's, it's for them. That's what it's for. So if, if you're up here like Hannah was before leading singing, she's not here for her. She's here for us. To, so that we may be, in, be encouraged to sing and to worship the Lord better than we do otherwise. And um, I'm sure Hannah enjoyed herself, but even if she didn't, it wouldn't matter. Because she's not here to enjoy herself. She's here to help us to worship the Lord. So, you know, she can be having a rotten time out here, but as long as we're worshipping God better, then she's doing a good job. And the same with preaching. You know, we, um, most preachers like preaching. It's a, I do, I enjoy doing it. But at the same time, um, if I think I haven't hit it, I think that somehow I haven't conveyed the message right, I, I'm desolated. And I think that's, was, I wasn't here for me to have fun. I'm here because I, my, my desperate hope is that people will take something home with them. It'll make a difference to their lives. And if that's not happening, I think well, I better 
either change my preaching or give up or something. And so I've been preaching a long time and I'm still looking for ways to do it better. Not for me, but because I want the Word to have a deeper impact in people's lives. And we're getting off the subject. Um, so th- this principle here, whoever loses his life and uh, will... Uh, whoever, rather, who, in this, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will keep it. That's Jesus' principle. Now, a story. Um, in 1970... Where is it? 1978, I felt God um, calling me... Uh, and my wife to establish Tabor College, which I'm sure you've heard of. You know, Tabor today has campuses in Hobart and Perth and Adelaide and Melbourne, and it's a very flourishing Bible college network. Uh, we, in previous years, we've had classes in Indonesia and also had a, a, a campus in Sydney for a time. Um, so it's, and, uh, there are Tabor graduates all over the shop. Uh, and I was in Malaysia a couple of weeks ago, preached in two churches, pastored by former students, I'm going to be in Thailand later in the year working with another Tabor graduate there and missionary work. And, you know, they're all over the place, so it's been a great work. But it didn't start like that. So we started a Dennis Slape and his wife Chris and my wife Vanessa and me, and we started off this, uh, this new enterprise called Table. Um, started with $2. That was our first donation, it was $2. And it was all green $2 notes. Anyway, the last Sunday, because uh, we've both been on the pastoral staff at uh, Sturt Street, my last Sunday... Uh, afternoon service, I was due to give a 20-minute talk, um, sort of a swan song, and uh, then that would be my last, then that was it. The same Sunday, uh, the, the church was about to start a new primary school, and so the new headmaster was also given 20 minutes. We had 20 minutes each to, uh, to speak. And I was going to preach on this text, John 12, 23, 25. And I had a little story I wrote about a grain of wheat falling into the ground, a sort of parable. I was going to tell the story. Anyway, the other guy got up first, and uh, this is about a year after Pastor Leo Harris had died, and one of the other pastors were leading the service, so the other man, can't even think of his name now, but he got up first, and uh, he began to give, take his 20 minutes talking about the new school and what they hoped to achieve and everything, and so he got to 15 minutes, and it seemed to me like he was still on his introduction, and he got to 20 minutes, and he kept going, so... Kept going another five minutes, 25 minutes. And I'm thinking, hang on, mate. You just pinched five minutes out of my time because the service was such that we had another service following and you, you couldn't go over time. You had to finish on time. Not like tonight, we can go on for hours here, but, but uh, we couldn't do that then. So he went on another 10 minutes. He's, he's, he's up to 30 minutes by now, and that's you know, cut my 20 down to 10. And uh, I'm getting a bit agitated. And I'm beginning to think, okay, what can I leave out? Well, I'll, I'll leave out that bit and I'll leave out this bit. And I'm cutting, mentally cutting my message down. My wife leans over, she says, you take your time anyway. <laughs> she says, you take your time anyway. Another five minutes goes by, he's gone to 35 minutes now, so I've got five minutes left. And then he's on to 40, and nobody's tried to stop him. The chairman hasn't nudged him, tapped him on the shoulder, nothing. He's sitting there, and so he's taken my whole time. And about that point, I started to smile. And Vanessa looks at me, she thinks, what's wrong with you? And but I begin to smile because I saw what was happening to me. I was going to preach this great farewell message about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying and giving its life in order that it might be fruitfulness. And I realized that God was saying to me, that's your sermon. Are you willing to let your sermon die? Are you willing to let your great masterpiece of Pentecostal preaching be buried without even being listened to? And I could see the funny side of what God was doing, that he was asking me to live my sermon, not preach it. And it was a weird experience. I should have been very angry. Instead, I'm sitting there almost laughing at the delight of God's sense of humor in dealing with me like that and proving a point. <laughs> Vanessa was astonished. And uh, anyhow, finally he stopped. It must have been about 45 minutes. He finally stopped, so they called me up. So I knew I couldn't speak very long. So I, I just took five minutes and uh, I read the scripture and said I wanted to leave that verse with them, didn't talk about it, and just thanked them for their prayers in the future and went and sat down again. And my colleagues who were going to get the college going with me were very cross with me. Um, people said, I said, you didn't even talk about the college. You didn't say anything. And uh, I said, well, I couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. Not because I didn't have time then, but I couldn't because I knew God wouldn't let me. So I didn't. Um, but I said I had a little story I'd written from that uh, message that never got preached. Um, and um, I forgot all about that. But then about two years later, maybe three years later, I got an invitation from a, a large church in Adelaide to write a, an article for their youth magazine. They bought it out every couple of months. So I thought, what do I write for young people? And I remember this little story, so I got it out, and I actually only had it in note form, and I wrote it out in detail, 
and it was about the right length, so I sent this off, and they printed the story. And that was okay. That was a magazine read by a couple of hundred kids, I suppose. And then sometime later, somebody sent me a magazine from England, a youth magazine, glossy youth magazine, with a big circulation, and they had the story in there. They'd actually improved on it. Um, the two, I had two grains of wheat in my story that were called uh, Husky and Starch. Uh, they changed the names, and they called them Starkey, Starkey and Hutch. <laughs> um, so anyway, the story got out was read by all those other young people. And then later on, uh, I decided to use it in a book, and the book back there is called Living in the Image of God, and one of the chapters is this story. And so what Jesus said was true. The grain of wheat was buried, but eventually it sprung a little shoot, the youth magazine, then another shoot, the other magazine, and then it's in a book, and, and I've told it a few times, and it's gone all over the place. So it came to life anyway, eventually, but in God's way and in God's time. And I have preached on that verse uh, since then to in other places. But yeah, that's, that's the kingdom. That's, that's crucified faith. It's a faith that says, well, nothing to do with me. It's not for me. Not at all. If I'm going to believe God, it's going to be for everybody else. And uh, if that story can help some people, well, praise the Lord, that's good. Um, if it's not going to do that, well, that's all right. Um, and so it, it's crucified faith is a faith that does great things for God, yet on the other hand, make sure it is God. People have said to me, was it hard to leave Tabor? And I said, well, it's never mine in the first place. It's only ever God's. So I've lost nothing. And, uh, God's still got it. <laughs> so he's still, still going, still training people for the ministry. And so um, it's a mentality you have to develop that r- realizes that... Yeah, and and uh, the other thing that I haven't even talked about tonight was the time we had a great fire in the college. Someone tried to burn the college down in 1986. 87, 1987. And um, you know, a terrible um, attack, terrible arson attack. And, you know, enormous loss. I lost a lot of research materials that I was using for my PhD and some historical documents that were rare and were gone. But again, it was never mine. It's only ever God's. So you feel natural sadness, I suppose. But it's God's work. And he can look after it. He's been around for a while. He knows how to handle these things. <laughs> so crucify face. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to, and you know, we did that with Tabor. I look back on it now and I don't know how we did what we did. We took a, a little you know, school with, with nothing. Um, we started in 1979. In 1986, we ran a convention where 30,000 people came to Adelaide uh, over the week. And I, I still don't know how that happened. It was just a time of God's divine favor and, and God's blessing. Uh, just an incredible thing. But it's God's work. It's, it's God's doing. And I'm glad we had faith for it. I'm glad we believed God. I'm glad we were ready to get out there and have a go and do something. Um, but uh, that was we got plenty of personal satisfaction and blessing out of that um, but that's not the point the point is did it do something good for the kingdom and it did and it did and it's still doing that still touching people's lives so why keep going well they keep going because it's all God's work anyway and uh, you leave it with him and he'll do with it what he wills he'll do with your life what he wants to do with it it's not a matter of being envious or jealous or frustrated it's a matter of simply of keeping going and keeping on walking and that's the final point that's this, that we just keep on walking, even with a limp. Just keep going. And people have sometimes said to me, yeah, how have you done what you've done? Well, I don't know I've done that much, but I just say, well, I just keep going. So I just, I just keep going. I can't go one way, I'll go another way. I just keep going. Because uh, I just want to keep on serving the Lord and pleasing Him. So, that'll do. Let's stand up and pray. <coughs> Okay, it would just help if you closed your eyes and just uh, took your eyes off anything and everything uh, so we can try and see the Lord a bit. But first I want you to look in your own heart. Is there something in your heart, something in your life that uh, is a limp or a bruise for you? Is there something that's really knocked you around in your heart and your purpose? And maybe you've even resented the fact that it's there. Well, it could be anything. It could just be something you're born with. Maybe you wish you could do something that you can't. Maybe you'd love to sing and you can't sing. Or, you know, or maybe you had an accident and you can sing, but now you can't sing. It's just something that in your heart and life is something that's there and, and you, you've been unhappy about it. You've been even resentful towards God about it. It could be. It could be. I want to pray tonight that the Lord will help you to hand it over to him.
and uh, let him just take it all let him deal with it is that okay all right so i want you to be willing to face it up and say lord just apologize right now say, lord i'm sorry i've been mad with you and i shouldn't have been been angry and i shouldn't have been you know and if you want to take it from me that's okay if you want me to bury it that's all right i'll bury it and then leave it to God whether it seeds or whether it germinates or not. That's up to him. So, Father, all of us have probably got stuff in our lives like that that uh, really, yeah, I'm not very proud about. And I know we'd all love to do things better and I wish we could achieve more. But, Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for what we can do, whether it's great or small. We don't have to be like someone else. Lord, we pray that you just take away any envy, any uh, jealousy of someone else. Lord, any resentment, any bitterness. God, any, uh, anything that might be displeasing to you or might be holding us back from being what we can be because we're so worried about what we can't be. So, Father, I ask for healing tonight. God, that every one of us here this night We'll feel a healing touch now, just by your spirit. God, that you just heal us from these attitudes and these feelings, these doubts, these regrets, whatever they are. God, just clean the slate. Clean the slate tonight, please. Lord, clean our hearts, clean our lives. Oh, God, that we may just see something, Lord, of your wonder, of that splendor that Oswald Sanders talked about, that heavy weight of glory that Paul talks about. Oh, God, so much better than the trivial things that we that concern us so much. And Lord, for people who might be thinking, you don't know how I feel, well, I probably don't. But God does. And he knows how dear some things are to us. He knows how much we hurt when we lose things. Some of you have lost loved ones and uh, maybe still feeling that. Yeah, that's okay. The Lord says, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. But you can't hang on to it. We can't hang on to things. And those things have to go. And we have to be willing to submit them to the will of the Lord and uh, to say, God, I'm here because I want to please Jesus. And I want to live like Jesus. Oh, so Lord, I'm just preaching again. Just for all of us now, just by your spirit right now, touch our lives, oh God. Oh, just touch our lives, I pray. And redeem the time for us and Lord, help us to be cured. I think of Jesus said how he came to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. Lord, Heal the brokenhearted here tonight. Set the captives free, O God. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.